Raptors win 123 to 117 against the Charlotte Hornets, who are starting Cody Martin at the point guard position. Um, we got a game where finally they had Jakob Pertl close. He made several huge late plays on the defensive end, on the offensive end as well. Blocks and tap-ins. They once again didn't really go to Scotty that much down the stretch, which is, I think, you want to see them get those reps, obviously, but the players play to win. And they won a lot of the minutes down the stretch. That was nice to see. Largely in this game, getting four threes from RJ, getting four threes from Gary, three from Quickly, three from Schroeder, and two from Grady. Huge portion of winning this game. Massive. The fact that they were able to lock down late, very important. The fact that they were able to get stops, really big deal. But overall, this game was uh, laissez-faire, I would say, in approach. Miles Bridges scores 45 points on 27 shots. Brandon Miller goes for 20. Cody Martin goes five points above his season high. He was Caleb Martining the Raptors. Obviously, Caleb Martin has popped off in an incredible way in Miami and most, you know, most famously during their finals run. 19 points for him, eight assists, like five boards on 13 shots, an absurd game. And even Bryce McGowan's came in, gave him 10 points. For anybody who was at the live podcast, Last night, which thank you to everybody who came out. It was a total blast. Trey mentioned Bryce as somebody who uh, who did a, you know, I would say uh, has a chance at being an interesting player and maybe somebody to look at going forward. Coco says you hate to see it in brackets. Bridges, there is something like, you know, Bridges is considered not not a great guy because he he's a domestic abuser. And, you know. It's women's in sports day. You didn't want him popping off for 45 and a win. Um, is, for the people who subscribe to that, some form of justice, I suppose. Mauricio Arena says poor defensive schemes against Martin and Bridges. Um, I wonder what kind of schemes we're talking about. We can we can think about that. Um, what I think we saw a little bit of blitzing, but mostly they're playing straight up. They did switch a lot of stuff late. And also the Raptors' point-of-attack defense hasn't been so good lately, which means a lot of guys get downhill. Oleg watched the game with me. We watched it right here, and we were kind of talking about, you know, R.J. Barrett being bad defensively since coming over to the Raptors and maybe not being super impressive as a Nick, but that there are problems elsewhere on the roster that sometimes it feels a little bit unfair to drill down on just R.J.'s defense. In that moment, Bruce Brown got blown by by... Brandon Miller, like immediately. We saw them blitz Ish Smith and him split them. I tweeted this like Thierry Henry and get downhill, pass to the corner. A lot of what Bridges did felt like it came on second side stuff after somebody had already gotten downhill and he had a hell of a game shooting way better than he normally does. I mean, 63% for 45 points is an absurdity. Seven assists. This is not the norm for him. And obviously, Cody Martin's performance is the norm for him. I like Brandon Miller, though. I He's got a very aesthetically pleasing game. There's a lot of, like, pop to it. And so, huh. Leaky Black also interested me, just for what it's worth. OG3 says, Gideon Bridges both frying us as nasty vibes. At, yeah, 
honestly, truly. It, it is definitely those those are not good vibes. However, Grady Dick and the fellows have a huge run. They snap off an 11-0 run. They get back into this game. Then Grady subs out. They got as much as they could from him. He's he's not a tank player. Grady plus nine. He's a guy who wins his minutes, right? Hell yeah. And uh, so they sub him out. Bruce Brown and Scotty come back in and they close out the game with Jakob. Jakob has a huge block late, gets huge stops, gets the tap in. Um, they're going mostly to IQ actions late. What we're seeing is these slip screens from Scotty trying to slip into space. Emmanuel didn't really find him. Emmanuel was taking the lane because they weren't really digging down from the strong side corner. So he's trying to get downhill. It wasn't all that impactful. And even on top of that, right, um, at least he got downhill and was able to, you know, good job on Pirtle to kind of warm his way to the rim. He had four offensive rebounds tonight and tap it in. Uh, I think, like, Dennis took an ill-advised three with, like, three minutes left, I think, out of the corner. He didn't hit that. The Hornets broadcast was like, no way, as soon as it went up. But also, I people complain about, you know, as Minhas Raman says here, Dennis's shot selection still hurts my head. It, he's only four of nine tonight. He took six threes and shot three of six on them. He got to the line seven times, like five assists, two turnovers, 16 points. I, it's, I don't want to drill down on Dennis too much. I think sometimes like there are ill-advised plays, but I do think that maybe sometimes we over-index on Dennis's shot selection when he doesn't like he doesn't take over the offense to the degree that I think the sentiment suggests that he does and neither does rj barrett i think that as we see another game where rj finishes with 23 scotty with 18 Jakob with 12 gary trent jr with 14 quickly with 18 brown with 12 shooter with 16 grady took two shots scored six thad finishes with four had eight rebounds like this team is pretty egalitarian and i understand why fans would want certainly like they have an all-star player in scotty barnes maybe not so egalitarian like maybe you work the ball to him a little bit more often maybe late when he's slipping out of those screens with quickly for example you don't say okay let's well you don't say like hmm how do we how do we get him the ball on the slip maybe you should run something with scotty on ball and let him take on the switch that's probably coming out of that um out of that pick and roll or even still if they do blitz it scotty is a guy who can pass over the top of blitzes especially if a guard is involved in the blitz I know that they're a little bit bigger at guard sometimes, the Hornets, just because, you know, if it's Cody Martin at guard, it is a little bit bigger. But in reality, I think that, like, they have to be a little bit more intentional get, about getting Scotty the ball. But I don't think it's always just Dennis on the other side of that equation. I think there's, like, a bunch of guys, 13 shots from Gary, 13 from Quickly, 9 from Shooter, sure, 14 from Scotty, 15 from RJ. It's not always Dennis, I guess. That's that's kind of what it is. Gen X Mike says, I enjoyed Thad crunching Washington. Why would you like that, man? What's wrong with PJ Washington? He did get crunched, though. He got slammed, man. I've seen one wrestling event in my life, Royal Rumble, with Blake. It was a week and a half ago, something like that. That looked like something out of that. I was just glad. I think PJ was okay, right? He slammed the floor so hard. It was nuts. And, you know, PJ had a really bad game. Minus 19, two for 11. His minutes, they just got absolutely demolished. Um, yeah. 
Keir Doyle ha- says he's a plus nine in 26 minutes with only nine shots. Hardly the dominant guy, really. That's in reference to Dennis Shooter. That's true. I think, like, there are, hmm, there are sentiments that get championed. There are, like, easy catch-alls that people cling on to. And I think, like, Dennis is maybe too much of, he gets a lot of flack. Now, he's he's definitely not perfect and deserves, like, critique in his game for sure and minhas brings up like kind of the mid-range shooting is what gets to him i get that too especially since dennis is like it seems like he could probe downhill a little bit more on some of those mid-rangers a lot of them are fading and even though he's shooting them pretty well this year it's not exactly the best process you want to happen um but yeah it's 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 something that like since moving to the bench i don't mind schroeder and and honestly emmanuel quickly as far as being like a point of attack guy, the reason why the minutes are better with Schroeder is because Schroeder is more capable at the point of attack. So Darko obviously has liked a lot of the two guard lineups, which means that like Barrett is put in a unique position scoring against wings and defending wings. And he hasn't been, you know, there's been some tough games for him defensively, surely, but he's done a really good job offensively in this game. 60% from the floor, 23 points, five assists, one turnover. Just great. You know, Sammy76 says Dennis is second in mid-range field goal percentage in the league. Yeah, he shot them super well. The aesthetics of them are tough, and fans, you know, and, and analysts, everybody is, you know, influenced by the aesthetics. It's uh, just kind of the way it shakes out. But, yeah, Dennis has hit a lot of mid-range um, this season. I'm surprised to hear second, though. Um, usually I don't look it up in context of the league. Usually I just go look it up and see what he's shooting. Um, I'll poke around on cleaning the glass and see that. But overall... We have a win to talk about with a bunch of like impressive performances, especially the ones that come late in the game. The ball going out to RJ in the corner, you know, a little toe tap, figures it out, gets there on time, cans it. That's fantastic. Um, Keir Doyle says, man, that play with Yach dribble handoff for RJ where he comes up from the corner and wraps around to go to the basket on his left is so great. Yeah, um, they run quite a few different variations of trying to get RJ on that drive out of the right corner whether it's like a blade cut during a pick and roll at the top, whether it's a Miami where he's coming off of that into a, well, he's coming off of the dribble handoff into another screen. That's a Miami action. Or if it's a Chicago where he's coming off of a pin down into the handoff, they can preempt a lot of his drives with this kind of stuff. And also just like the, the empty side pick and rolls, they're able to, you know, the one play we see, and this is something we saw him do against Malik Monk and Steph Curry very successfully in the spicy barbecue days. But we saw it tonight is that RJ, if he has a small player on him, you can go to a pinch post action. That means an empty side post up. The four other players on the other side of the floor, they have to bring the attention from, you know, the doubles come from places he can see. He can whip the ball across the floor to create three-point looks. We got one early in this game. Pinch post, you you bring it right up, Keir Doyle. The pinch post versus Ish and skip past IQ. That's exactly it. Just like, and he, he's been working on, you know, he can sling it with his left hand, obviously. But he has a push pass too that he's able to make. And a push pass isn't as effective as like a right-handed sling, but he doesn't really have the right-handed sling. So the push pass is um is not so bad. John Lamb has like the classic... Um, the Russell Westbrook one, but I don't feel as bad about this as Russ did for the famous quote. But was this more of the Raptors playing better or Hornets playing bad towards the end of the game? And that that that's like the what they ask Russ, like, did you guys win this or did they lose this? And he goes, what? But I get what you mean. 
I get what you mean. Like sometimes a team can fumble it away. A player doesn't want to hear that because he, a player, you earn what's out there on the court and you do to some degree. But I like this question. I think that the Raptors played better towards the end of the game and the Hornets, a lot of what they were doing early on in the game, some of it was driving the ball, but some of it was just like insane shot making. And the Raptors had to respond to that insane shot making to some degree. And they just kept making shots. And then once they responded to that defensively, started using driving lanes to get middle. And they built a big lead out of that and were able to keep the Raptors at bay. Once those jumpers kind of dried up and the Raptors went to these, you know, the two guard lineups and their point of attack stuff is a little bit stronger and the Hornets wings aren't just going like bonkers with their jumpers. The Raptors can kind of settle in what into what they do defensively. And I'll, like, I'll tell you this much, off, offensively, guard initiation they didn't need scotty to succeed late in game we of course have seen scotty succeed late in a ton of games and but they didn't need it because they were able to get downhill and we got to see like a tap in from Jakob. we got to see a little bit of plays to put the hornets in second side rotation and that was good enough to win this game but they mostly won this game on the defensive end of the floor so that's kind of how it shook out so Partly the Hornets like losing it, partly the Raptors winning it, as is the case with most of these games. Slomo says would like to see IQ fire off more threes as well. Certainly. Um, I can't remember who it was, but they they mentioned, oh yeah, OG3 also said, I still feel like IQ is turning down pull-up threes. I think so too. This is something I think I'm probably going to write about over the All-Star break, but I've been paying really close attention and trying to talk to a bunch of shot doctors and scouts about um, Quickly's jumper and some players as well including iq about his hesitancy to shoot it going left and how i've talked about this on the podcast before but how it's a little bit odd that he doesn't like to load up on his non-shooting side for his jumper most jump shooters from amateur house league basketball college nba players they prefer loading up on the side of their body that doesn't include their shooting arm it's easier to keep the balance that way and keep it steady on your shooting side. IQ is a guy who prefers to load up on his shooting side. Now, I don't know the biomechanics that allow him to do so successfully, but he doesn't like doing it the opposite way, which really has hampered his ability to score out of the pick and roll with pull-up threes because you have to be able to pull up going both ways. Because if a team is icing or something like that, right? Like, Let's say it's Emmanuel quickly and they're icing at the top. That means they're forcing him to his left. They're going to keep that side of the floor. You're going downhill that way. If he's comfortable going left, you can hang dribble and pull right there. We've seen Steph Curry do it a million times. We see we saw Kyle Lowry do it a lot. If he would if he were to get iced. We even saw Fred Van Lee do it sometimes too, right? Um, although Fred is another guy who is very comfortable going right and left, though. Um, although I think the ceiling for iq as a jump shooter is maybe a little bit higher than fred um it's it's a unique thing that iq doesn't have in his game that is showing up i think a little bit repeatedly and that's also led to sometimes when he's headed downhill those kind of like off balance push right-handed floaters he's mostly better with the floater going to his right floating slightly and kind of positioning it above his head stuff to pay attention to but like darko said you know i think it was Maybe the the last game I was at, honestly, I'm not sure because they've been on such a long road trip. I haven't been at a game in almost a month now. Um, I, I guess it was the Miami game or the Chicago game. Well, Darko said he wanted IQ taking like 10 threes a game, like just get it up and up and up and up. And um, OG3 also adds, I think IQ barely takes corner threes and they're more often contested or movement shots. 
it's hard to control for an initiator to shoot threes from the corner. It's really, really hard to control for that because an initiator is usually the guy who gets into the teeth of the defense. And for example, like Scotty isn't the guy who makes the read to the corner very often. He, and, and neither is Dennis for what it's worth. So if you're going to run a manual open to get him threes, you're going to have to do it above the break or you're going to have to stack him on the same side as Scotty in a post-up or double situation, even with RJ as well, right? Um, RJ is probably the most accomplished drive plus skip passer just because of volume on this on the season. And as far as like what we're looking for from IQ to get him corner threes or something like that, it's harder to control for that stuff. That's why like Pascal in the 2021-22 season, I think he shot like 49% on corner threes, but the Raptors had to position Pascal above the break so often because he needs to be there in support if their initial play doesn't work. He needs to be able to go get the ball quickly to run the next action. Quickly is somebody like that. And also players who shoot better above the break should be positioned above the break. Scotty being able to hit above the break threes is really important. And he can also make somebody like RJ, for example, who probably shoots it better from the corner. He can go space from the corner where he shoots it better. And Scotty can space above the break. Being an above the break shooter means that you make other shooters who are you know more prolific or proficient from the corner, you put them in more comfortable positions. So there's a lot going into Emmanuel quickly and his corner three-point shooting, like the the volume and the difficulty and all that kind of stuff. But I, I guess we'll see what happens with all that. Um, it, it's tough to control for corner threes, of course. Um, I think it was... Let's see, what are the numbers? So, you know, Phoenix Play Z said he's shooting 25% on corner threes when he does take them, Samson. I think we only have an 18-shot sample size. He's three for 18 on the year, or as a Raptor, I should say. So 18 is not very much, obviously, right? Um, in years past, he's been 41%, 38%, 36%. So not a home run hitter from the corners or anything like that. But, um, of course, he's shooting 49% above the break which is insanity. Um, best in the NBA, which is awesome. Well, 49% is a Raptor, around 45 46% on the season. So having that is a way bigger deal than having a guy who shoots from the corners. Of course, you want it all, all the time, but that's kind of how it is. Antoine Rose with you know a, a comment. I think RJ is our best scorer easily. <laughs> Probably. I think RJ has done a tremendous job of inputting himself without taking over the offense. He's kind of been really a no-frills scorer. And also Antoine Rose commented before, this game shows you how much RJ means to the Raptors. I think he's extremely important to the health of the Raptors' offense. And I don't think that's reflected in the on-off statistics, but I think it's evident to people who... Um, I think it's evident to the people who watch. You can see the impact he's been able to have. And... His ability to pressure the rim, pass out of drives, collapse the defense is something that is not replicated by anybody else on the roster currently. Um, Scotty does not drive as often as RJ. He doesn't finish at the rim as often as RJ. He's he, Scotty has been the better player. He's the all-star. But RJ is a guy who fills a very niche need on the Raptors. And for a team that doesn't get to the rim that often, RJ being a guy who's just like, I'm getting there. I'm taking it there. I'm going to finish there. And the fact that he has like really good pace, you know, coming off those second side actions, like if he gets a pick and roll, he can come around the edge, 
put his guy in jail, kind of like crab dribble into the middle, cross it back over, get to the left side of the bucket. That's really high level stuff. And his pacing and aggression is not really replicated elsewhere on the roster. And I think that's put him as like, as far as the, you know, intersection of efficiency and volume, since he's been on the Raptors, he's probably scored more points than, well, not points overall, but I think his points per game would be very comparable to Scotty's and the efficiency would be slightly better. Um, Nabil says a no frill score ellipses. Dare I say a breath of fresh co-air? Yeah, something like that. It's It's been really, really interesting to watch them, you know, coexist. And that's something that they will get, you know, more used to over time and all that kind of stuff. Um, on the corner three thing, just to kind of like close this up, Phoenix plays E says, the corner three is the most efficient offensive play in hoops outside of a layup though. Yes, totally. However, it's you can't control for how often you create corner threes, especially since defenses, for example, right? Like what what is the rotation, a defensive rotation? Let's say you get the tag or something like that. You run a pick and roll with, he, perfect example. You run a pick and roll, with Scotty and Jakob, right? You get the tag. The tag man comes from the corner to guard Jakob so that he can't make that pass downhill. So the guy is dropping down to defend the corner. Gary Trent Jr. lifts out of the corner and hits a three above the break. You get a three out of that situation, but you couldn't control for getting the ball to the corner. Why? because the defense wants to take that away. So while it is efficient, you need to be able to score elsewhere to open it up. You need to threaten elsewhere. And if Gary wasn't a good above the break three-point shooter, then that lift would be mean would be meaningless. And it could be possible that in the future, when they play other teams, if Gary lifts and somebody filters to the corner who is a good three-point shooter, Gary's presence above the break means that he can make that pump and make that progressive pass to the corner. It's tough to control for volume in the corner like that's just them's the breaks it is really efficient the raptors like layups are really efficient too for years they haven't gotten that many of those outside of like pascal and then scotty in like broken plays and in transition they're really tough to control for so it's the three point the corner three point shot stuff is important but to me it's way more important to be able to hit above the break threes because teams are less capable of guarding them and it allows you to put lesser shooters in more advantageous positions. That's what it is. If you can only shoot corner threes, you are really limited as a shooter. If you can bang above the break triples, you've got a ton, a ton, a ton of utility there. It's um, one of the most important things. Kira Doyle says, RJ being this good so far opens up so many weird questions for future in terms of his value to the org and throughout the league. Certainly, it is it is something to pay attention to, of course. And RJ, I think, deserves nothing but flowers, really, right? As far as like, well, he, offensively, I think he's been very impressive. He's been very efficient. And then once you start trying to build like the best team you can, not a team that loses a lot of games, wins the occasional game against the Hornets, then you start wondering about like RJ's best role next to Scotty, how RJ fits in. Do you mostly want him playing like the two or the three? How do you make the defense work? All that kind of stuff. Really, really important and like fantastic. Those are fun team building questions, of course. Um, but to go back to just because this is a, an interesting back and forth, Phoenix plays Z says, yes, but teams usually tilt their defense by helping off the weak side corner along with gap help. Yes, but they also do something called Xing out 
so that when that pass does go to the corner, the guy above the break makes the X out rotation to the corner and the guy from the paint makes the longer rotation out above the break where the ball is moved from the corner because you're able to control for that volume by helping to the corner with an X out rotation, right? Like teams don't want to give up corner threes. There's a reason teams like they, they love corner threes and people should, but there's a lot of value in hitting above the break threes because that's where most plays are initiated. And you can control for that because it's there's way more room above the break. And also, it's way easier to control. You know, you talk about teams that work from the, like, no middle type of ideal defensively. Most NBA teams do work from a no middle process. If you work from no middle, it's a lot harder to control drives above the break than it is drives that come from the corner. Corner drives are less efficient because your playmaking possibilities are going through a crowded lane. Whereas if you drive middle after getting like, if you have the type of gravity as an above the break shooter, pump and get middle, you can play make straight ahead to the basket. You can play make to either corner. You can 45 cut from strong side or a weak side. You can baseline cut as the defense steps up. But those passes aren't as, you don't have as many ways to like play make if you're driving from the corner. It's a lot easier for teams to contain the drive from the corner than it is above the break. So obviously, corner three-point shooting is very effective. It is very efficient. But the implication of being a guy who is able to hit an above-the-break three is massive. It's super, super important. Um, Kier Doyle says, can you draw an X out if you got the paper? Sure, let's do that. Let's draw an X out. Okay. So basically, we'll draw this up. We'll do what um, what the X out rotation is. So let me just draw it. We'll draw the, the thing up. Okay. Um. Okay. I'll draw it while I do this here. So let's say that we have a pick and roll, and the the pick and roll ball handler gets downhill. Right. This guy is tagging. Let's say here's the pick and roll ball handler. Here's the the roll man. The guy from the corner tags the roll man. This guy is here. That's a defender right there. Okay, if you make the pass out to the guy from the corner, this is the rotation he makes to make sure you can't shoot that corner three. This guy will make this rotation when he moves the ball up there, creating quite literally an X. And that rotation is called an X out. That's what an X out is for anybody who wanted to know. So it's um, OG3 said if Samson was dedicated, he would start drawing these plays up on his walls. That would be like, a super fun little wrinkle, obviously. Um, yeah. And, and Slomo has something here. says, what is most effective in the NBA is having a top five player. Of course. Um, top five players dictate everything that's, that's happening. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of something. Um, I think um, X-Out is another Phoenix Play Z. I'll just put on the, the coach's cap quickly for another one. X-out is another term for pre-switching the back line, right? Not exactly, but there is a pre-switch at the point of attack in the pick and roll. And that is called nexting. So we'll draw a next rotation, right? So a next rotation is where you're able to create a really quick rotation. And it works like an X-out, basically, but it's just done above the break. You're not pulling from the corner, for example. So an X-out is the one we saw the last play I just drew. But a next rotation would be like, let's say you're running a pick and roll here. The pick and roll ball handler above the break for audio listeners is turning the corner. 
the guy on the weak side above the break is going to pre-switch into the lane to guard the guy on ball. And the guy who's playing lock and trail defense is going to go over the top to who he was guarding. This can be undone pretty quickly by the player making a 45 cut into the lane. But not all players are proactive cutters, and not all cutters are good finishers. So these are the types of, let's say, what Phoenix plays E says, pre-switching is a term you can use, of course, but we usually talk about pre-switching in the Draymond Green example, where Draymond Green would pre-switch everything out of that back line to make sure that he was involved in pick and rolls. For example, if you have two guys stacked on the same side right here, this is where guys are positioned. Draymond Green is this guy right here. They call this guy, whoever it is on the opposing team, to run the pick and roll for the guy up above the break. Draymond Green will pre-switch onto him and involve himself in the pick and roll action because he's such an immensely talented defender. Now teams, after watching the Warriors succeed at this in Draymond Green, this became a major trend in the NBA, and it's something we see happen all the time now. And that's why teams, you know, we've seen LeBron James do it many times, Luka Doncic do it many times, kind of go through the rigmarole of trying to pre-switch a bunch of guys and then stack the floor in ways that makes it easier. This is also why a lot of teams started running empty side pick and rolls with their two best players so they can keep all this junk out of it and just simplify with their two best players and an empty side for them to work in. Coach's cap is off. That's all the defensive stuff, of course. Um, Phoenix Plays E says draw appeal switching diagram as well. Um, I'll be here talking tomorrow um, for the, I'll do a trade deadline podcast, the live stream. So um, I'll draw, I'll do appeal switching tomorrow. Come and ask me about that. And we can kind of get into it in some, in some dead air. Um, yeah, Phoenix Plays E says Boston pre-switched the Kemba matchup every time we tried to attack him in pick and roll. Correct. Um, there was a ton of pre-switching going on from both sides. What a series that was. My God. <sighs> okay. So back to the game. Who, well, what do we want to talk about in this game? Really? Uh, we got like 20 minutes of the game. What are we going to talk about now? Let's see. Let me pull up the box score. Do we, I guess we talked about the guard play. We talked about the defense a little bit, how important Jakob was. I guess I, I would say that this is a good example as far as I'm concerned, of showing Jakob's importance to the team, not only as a guy, you know, right now, but a guy in the future. And why I think that Jakob is a guy who pairs pretty well with what the Raptors want to be going forward. And I think having a good center to create looks for guys, to give you space out of, you know, these two-man actions for downhill play, whether it's like RJ or whether it's, um, IQ or whether it's Scotty, I think it's important for those guys to get those possessions where they get downhill, they see the defense rotating in front of them so they can get those reps in and see what defenses are trying to do. And as far as, um, as far as like the offensive rebounding, as far as holding up the back end defensively, I think it is important. He's contested so many shots at the rim this year. The, the effectiveness has waxed and waned, but it's, it's something that I think is important. Kirdoa asks, what did you think of Scotty IQ two-man game? Wolfond was talking about how kind of clunky it still is with Scotty not setting good screens and IQ being a little passive. Yeah. Scotty is not a super accomplished screen setter just yet. You know, Pascal never was. Uh, a lot of the best wing players never are. It isn't 
typically something that we expect of players like Scotty, especially for everything else that Scotty has been showing. But Scotty is such like Pascal was never the the never had the physical presence that Scotty had. So Pascal was a lot of it was like in the 2019 finals, right, is short rolling and then making plays out of four on three actions. Whereas Scotty is a guy who can actually, if he plants the screen, the guard or wing or whoever he's screening is really going to feel that. So it's maybe a little bit more worthwhile to him kind of work on his screening craft. Not to say that he's suddenly a big instead of, you know, a forward, but I think that Scotty is somebody who could benefit from that. It maybe is a little bit clunky. Like I talked about this early on in the podcast, the IQ plus Scotty actions, they ran late, were they didn't go anywhere and nothing good came out of them because they were either pre-switched or Scotty was slipping out of them before any advantage was gained. Basically, they were just running an action to run an action. And if Scotty was very good at sticking screens or flipping screens, if they're trying to pre-switch at the point of attack, like a lot of the best screeners are, and he's not there yet, then they could be able, you know, they might be able to get something more meaningful out of them. But that's not just on Scotty. IQ is also a guy who at this point underwhelms a little bit as a pick and roll initiator, and he needs to step up his job too. If the team like the Hornets are going to try and pre-switch something and they're stepping up to pre-switch, I think that IQ needs to be able to take it off the dribble and beat that man immediately. Like you can't, it can't just be Scotty who gets a switch and dominates. Like IQ should be getting a guy on him that he should be able to get downhill and beat and put the defense in rotation and make those decisions from there. So I think they both have stuff to work on and, but there's a ton of value there, obviously. And the, the facsimile, and I've given this stat many times before, but last season of the high, the high volume handoff partnerships, the sixth most efficient in the NBA last year was Scotty as the screener, Gary Trent Jr. as the ball handler coming off of that handoff. So if those guys can make it work, you have to assume that Emmanuel and Scotty should be able to make it work. So as Keir Doyle says here, hopefully we get a lot of reps back half of this year. That was um, That's certainly correct. We need to see a lot of it, and that will be one of the most interesting things to look for as far as like what we're seeing at the end of the season. As Jacob says, talk about Dick, we will. That's the guy I want to see a lot of over the course of this season. You know, maybe maybe a little bit of qualms with with Darko tonight that we only got 15 minutes from Grady. I typically like the games where we're seeing 20-plus minutes just because why not. But also, this stuff could be negated pretty quickly if he had a conversation with Grady and Grady is, like, hitting a rookie wall where it's like you can see he's getting gassed and you don't want him getting those reps where he's just, like, He's gassed, so he's not going to play the proper way. Like, Darko could come out. He doesn't have to say it, but Darko could know that, or Grady could know that. And immediately, the criticisms, are they're not really warranted from myself, right? So it could be something like that. Um, as Raptors fan says here, though, after tomorrow, i.e. the trade deadline, Grady getting 20-plus minutes for the rest of the season. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I like watching Grady play. And he goes two for two from three tonight. I think he's probably just climbed over 30% on the season now. So that's nice to see. And he, the way he plays basketball, I really quite enjoy. I think he has a tremendous feel for the game. He reads the floor very well. He shapes to the ball on both sides of the floor in a very impressive way. And yeah, that's kind of, that's the, the Grady stuff in this game. Plus nine. He is 
truthfully, when he's not being hunted, and the Raptors did a really good job of bringing two, like really bringing two to the ball when, let's say, Miles Bridges, for example, saw him on an empty side and was like, I'm about to like eat this guy for lunch. Um, they bring two and they kind of get him out of that situation. Sometimes you can see if he's in an he's in a disadvantaged situation, they'll scram switch him out of situations. So yeah, that's uh that's good stuff. And I think he he's six eight, six nine, which is bigger than most movement shooters are, and that's gonna help him defensively for a long time. Um and as long as the shot falls in at like for the rest of the season. 35 36% or above we're in like the green big time big 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 time and um i my earnest hope is that comes because he was when i talked to Blake on the Raptors show or he wasn't even it was on Blue Jays Talk Plus actually i don't know why i would be on that show um but i was and we we're talking about the Raptors draft and i had said i really wanted the, the Raptors to draft Grady Dick and i thought that that was something and I was overjoyed when they drafted him. I'm going to be honest. And um, yeah, I, I thought that, uh, I think that Grady has a very bright future. Um, Jacob Tarasov says, Fred screening slash ghosting for Pascal was my fave play. Yes, it's a, it's a, it was a fantastic, it was a staple of the playbook for a very long time. It was a staple of clutch time offense for a very long time. And I've written about and diagrammed that play a ton. Um, Will Cunning says, wait, is Grady really that tall? He's listed at 6'6". I think he was listed at six eight coming out of uh, Kansas, but maybe the maybe the NBA draft stuff came out different. I know they measure in socks as well, so that that could be true. Um, he's maybe he's a bit shorter. It's like the Cade Cunningham thing, right? Everyone thought Cade was like six eight, six nine. Well, actually, not six nine. They thought he was six eight, and then people were like, "Oh, maybe he's like closer to six six, six five. And that for some people, that changed what they thought about him. Bernard Ballion says Grady Dick shooting forty six percent from three in the last ten games. We're so here, brother. We're so here. This is what we've been waiting for, certainly. Um, to the Jordan Wara point, I'm. That's another thing with Darko, who I've been um, more. I'm certainly more pro Darko than I've seen sentiments shared from the chat or from like Twitter or the Raptors public comment section so far this season. I've liked as far as um, as far as what Darko has been doing. I've liked his job as a coach, genuinely, and I, I've explained why many times on this podcast. However. I do think that it is odd that Wara isn't getting playing time. And when I, you know, I tweeted about this on Twitter, the, the quick response many people have is like, we'll see after tomorrow. And that's why like some of this stuff, odd rotation decisions, you know, as far as like teams that are giving a lot on defense, teams that seem a little bit disorganized or whatever, or maybe aren't getting the most impact or effort this time of year. It can be really tough. And as Raptors fan says, why is Boucher do not play and Brown is getting minutes if both are on the trade block? <laughs> I don't know. The, like the, those 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 conversations, I wish I could tell you. Like I, I can't get Masai on the phone or like Bobby on the phone and be like, guys, you know, what's what's the what's the motion here? I couldn't tell you. All I know is that those are the two guys who I expect to be traded tomorrow. And yeah, that's kind of how I feel about that. Wara, I, I would like to see Wara getting some minutes. Like I, I wrote about this, but the gunner situation between Gary Trent Jr., Wara and Grady, you know, I think Wara and Grady could be pretty rewarding as far as like giving Wara a lot of those minutes it, when Grady is like maybe gassed or maybe the Raptors are like, no, we, we like the look with 
as far as we like the look with war right now that's that's fine um i think it might be a little bit more more rewarding going into the future than having gary not wara and grady just because of how the minutes and all that kind of stuff might shake out i think i think grady's the future of the position but i think like wara could be like a very affordable team friendly stopgap um but this stuff can be affected of course by interpersonal relationships on the team expectations um the ongoing what a player and his agent or his team are having as far as like what they expect to get during the summer how they communicate that to the team and the decision makers all that kind of stuff um is impactful Kier Doyle says maybe sneaky suppress Gary Trent Jr. if you want to keep him next year yeah that's they already did that last season. Like Gary has lost a lot of money. Like Gary, there's a reason it was reported that he was looking for 25 million a year. He wanted to get the big uh, contract. He probably would have taken like something close to a repeat of the contract he signed three years ago. That's why he took his player option. And then as far as, as far as like, can they suppress it any further? I think Gary's, will be like around like a mid-level exception or like $15 million a year type of guard in the NBA. And I don't think the Raptors can suppress it any further. And also if you do that kind of stuff to players too often, which they already have to Gary, who's been like a consummate professional and all that kind of stuff. Um, it might, as far as like agents and stuff like that, and just on the human level, it might put a bad taste in some people's mouths. So that kind of stuff. And um, OG3 asks, how shocked would you be if Dennis was traded? I talked about this at the live show because William Liu, we, we were on the same panel and we were talking about it. And when I mentioned Dennis like being a possibility to be traded, everybody was like, what? You think he like you think he could be traded? And I was like, why not? Like I like I understand I understand it's not a likelihood that he will be traded. But as far as as far as like, could he be traded? Of course. I know, I know Darko likes having Dennis there and Dennis can move Darko through a lot of the stuff he likes to run. And he's kind of like a, a safety blanket for like getting the Raptors back into the sets they want to get into and all that kind of stuff. And I know probably there's a big, big gap or chasm between like fan sentiment on Dennis and Darko sentiment on Dennis, but it's certainly a possibility. This is, and this was the... This was the joke I made at the live podcast was like Masai, you know, he said the hardest phone call he ever had to make was the one to DeMar DeRozan. He said he was pacing around a hotel for two hours. And um, I asked Will, like, how difficult do you think that <laughs> decision is to trade Dennis and let Darko know? And he said, well, no, the 10 steps to walk into the office. And I think that's it. Um, if, there, if there's a team that's like gung-ho on Dennis and Dennis has been, I'll say it. Dennis, maybe his style of play or the expectations for what he's supposed to be in supporting Scotty or anything like that, I'm not sure they've aligned perfectly. I don't think that speaks poorly of Dennis, Darko, or Scotty or anything like that. Just like it's tough to get aligned ideals in, in this world. It's tough to get aligned ideals. Dennis, for a mid-level exception guard, is doing the job and has been doing the job. Now, 
Raptors fans, I think more than like any other fan base, are so spoiled about point guard play because Kyle Lowry was such a freaking genius for forever at somehow touching the ball six times over the course of a quarter, never taking a shot, but creating 24 points or sorry, 18 points. Like he just, his impact on the game was so cerebral and so perfect that every guard who comes after, and like Cam Whitmore in Houston was like, Fred is a genius. He, I shoot the ball better because I play with Fred. And Alperen Shangun is like, I love the way Fred sets the table. And they love Fred. Raptors fans did not like the way Fred set the table. And I think it's because when you're compared to Kyle Lowry, whose brain was the size of Earth, as far as like making decisions on a basketball court, I just, Dennis and Fred, they, they don't have it easy. Nobody who comes after Kyle Lowry has it easy. Um, yeah. Biggie35 says, I think everyone thinks Schroeder was a panic signing. That affects people's perception of him. I'll tell you this much. I was paying very close attention to the perception of Dennis Schroeder. Um, people very quickly talked themselves into thinking he was a better player than Fred Van Vliet. And very quickly talked themselves into thinking that like he played very differently than Fred Van Vliet, that he was a true point guard, a pass-first point guard, and that he would do all the stuff that Fred didn't. And people talk themselves into that very quickly. And obviously, Dennis, who had 10 years of NBA tape on him that I watched, I said, this probably won't be the way people view him after a handful of games. And that's that's what it is. Dog2233 says Fred's problem last season was he intentionally left Scotty out of Chelsea. He said it himself. That, I'll tell you, I saw what he said. That is not a reliable aggregation of what... <laughs> of what fred said um i i now i'm not saying team fred or team scotty or anything like that i think fred got the bag i think scotty has had a chance to flower into an all-star player and the raptors they couldn't really afford to pay fred 40 million dollars they're on the right side of it however that is not a faithful retelling of the the fred quote um i think that is a uh, I, I don't think that's faithful to the the spirit of what he said or anything like that. And Solmo says here, imagine where Raps would be paying Fred $45 million. I think it was $40 million, But yeah, it's, it's completely untenable. Like, they just, that's what we said when he signed. They're, like, it sucks that you get nothing back for Fred, sure. And I also disagreed with the people who said, this is addition by subtraction. I thought that was kind of ridiculous. But... It's just not tenable for the Raptors to be paying Fred $40 million for the caliber of team that they are or would have been, right? So that's kind of like how it's shaping up. Um, I don't I don't want to do the Fred stuff too much. I think I've done a decent job of towing the line without upsetting any camp, but um, they couldn't pay Fred that much. It made no sense. But also point guards in Toronto have it really hard because Kyle was literally the best, a Hall of Fame player, all like just awesome i loved kyle uh watching him play and i was never ever ever on the other side of like because kyle had it tough for a while in toronto too people wanted him traded people called him all types of things and like even Masai, evidenced by his attempts to trade him away a couple times and like the rifts that they had even people in the raptors organization weren't really wise to just how impactful and incredible kyle lowry was he's just like he is so far removed as far as like explosiveness, shot making, all that kind of stuff. And I understand that he's not 
you know, he's still up in the air. I mean, the Raptors technically just played the team that Lowry plays for, although he's not there. And but Lowry still could give something to a team. And it's just because he reads the game so well. He has such an astute understanding of how to play basketball. Um, so he set the tone for expectations of Raptors point guards. He is a Goliath, a Hall of Fame level point guard who brought them their first championship and is the greatest Raptor of all time. Good luck replacing that or stepping into those massive, massive shoes. Um, Keir Doyle asks, what's your number one niche wish list item over this deadline slash the summer for this team other than just overall talent? I would love um, a guard who provides rim pressure. Now, do you go and do like a biannual exception or, you know, like minimum contract for Jalen Noel or something like that? And maybe you say, well, in the like continuous motion, continuous screening offense of the Raptors, maybe he pops off a little bit. Maybe that's like the you're not even risking anything signing. It could be that. Do they try and like throw money at Malik Monk or something like that, who is no longer like so, so easy to guarantee like hardly any money and a ton of impact, which he's been for years. And the Raptors didn't take advantage of it. Although you could go back to podcasts from myself way back then. And I was championing that. I also championed Rashawn Holmes. So not everybody bats a hundred. Um, although I did like Hartenstein as well. So, you know, I mean, we all have our guys. Uh, and Jalen Noel is somebody I've been interested in a long time. Um, Bryce McGowan's, as I said at the top was somebody who said, um, Trey at the live podcast mentioned that he liked um, Bryce McGowan's. I know that Lewis really liked Bryce McGowan's coming out of the draft. Um, I saw, I believe it was Jake Fisher today, reported that uh, Ochai Abaji and Kelly Olenek was the rumored package for Bruce Brown. I I think that's a pretty good package. I think that Kelly Olenek, although he is expiring, so there is that, and there's no guarantee that he will sign back with a team that isn't very good. Um, but Kelly, I think, has been an underrated big man for a very, very long time. Although I was a little bit disappointed with his performance at FIBA. He had a tough tournament. Um, although was asked to kind of like battle against some really real, like some bashers in the front court, and he didn't necessarily um, have his best uh, tournament or anything like that. But I think he's been so underrated at the NBA level that he could really elevate the Raptors' front court. And I think Ochai or Ochai... Ohai. I actually don't know. I know it's Abaji. I don't know how to say if it's Ochai or Ohai. He's really handsome. You're basically waiting on the guy to see if his jumper falls, but it's a little less, you feel a little less eager or, you know, confident about that. Like we're waiting on Grady, who, as I can't remember who said, shooting 47% over his last 10 games, um, waiting on Grady, but Grady's like 20. Um, Abaji came out of the draft, I think at like 22 or 23 years old, right? Like he was a four-year player. Um, he's not as young. If you're expecting the jump shot to turn around or perform at the NBA level, it's probably more of a long shot. But if it does come around, I'd be really interested to see how that looks and to see how he can kind of like, you know, get his reps in and stuff like that. Um, it's not a slam dunk as far as like, you know, a trade for Bruce Brown. But I think I think that's I, I wouldn't be upset at that. Um, I could talk myself into that being quite interesting. And I think like Kelly Olenek and, and Scotty Barnes, there's a ton of like really interesting stuff that you could do there. Nesta says, give Kelly some slack. He's old in basketball years. Also, fun fact, Kelly Olenek, I worked with his sister at Foot Locker 
I like I went I went to the U of S. Um, Maya, she played for the University of Saskatchewan Huskies, and I worked with her at um, and played basketball with her um, occasionally um, in Saskatchewan when I was living there. And she was great. And um, I guess Kelly, I, I had met when I played um, not playing for Gonzaga, but when I was at Gonzaga um, as well. So cool stuff. Weird uh, ties to the Olenix. And obviously the Olenek family has like a major impact on Canada basketball as well. So yeah, fun little thing. Maya was, was always awesome. So yeah. Um, Keir Doyle says, I used to do research at U of S that buffet run by the culinary school slaps. Hmm. How odd. They're cool. Very, very unique. I, that's cool to know. I've never had the buffet at the culinary school. I'm going to be honest with you. So maybe I missed out while I was there, but when I was there, I was just like a greedy little college kid who was not eating the best, certainly not some culinary school buffets or anything like that. I was also really poor, just like my whole adult life. So I didn't, I wasn't springing for anything fancy. Um, Dawson Ned says, I would love to see Taylor Horton Tucker on the Raptors. If you told me a few years ago, I probably would have been more excited about that. And after... After watching like a decent amount of Talon over the years, probably not that excited about that. Keir Doyle says $15 buffet. So maybe nobody put me on. But $15? Is it $15 now? Or was it $15 like back in like 2015 or 2016? Because like $15 back then was not cheap. I, I, don't, I don't know how much money you had. I don't know. I'm not trying to like rich shame you or anything like that. But $15 buffet... For a student, when I could go get like a $6 meal somewhere, I don't know. I don't know if that was 2019. That's not so bad. Although I was living in Mexico in 2019. So I, w I didn't have the opportunity. But interesting to reminisce on this. Jacob Tarasov says, you go to school at Gonzaga? Question mark. No, I played um, club basketball. And there were two years in a row that I went to Gonzaga for a tournament and part of it was that we would go for a tournament between like a lot of the like team Sask, team Ontario, team Quebec, like and, and a bunch of like club teams from the United States would play at that tournament. And then also there'd be a week afterwards where all the kids would be separated into an ID camp and then you'd be like a fantasy draft. You'd be drafted and the Gonzaga players would coach teams and you would play in a tournament and all that kind of stuff. And um, that was what I did. That was that's my relation to Gonzaga playing basketball there. Um, David Stockton was the coach of my team, which is why I make jokes about David Stockton teaching me how to run the pick and roll so that I am. You know, there's John, David, Samson, folk. I'm in the the Stockton family of, of pick and roll, the lineage. That's the, the joke, of course. Um, but David Stockton also, who is a right handed shooter, beat me in a left handed shooting contest. And I'm left handed. He's very impressive. Like. He was 5'8 and made the NBA. Um, his his ball skills and everything are insane. Um, yeah, he's very impressive from that point of view. Although just like was, I'm, I'm doing analysis of him. He coached me. Um, he's just too small for the NBA as far as that goes. So yeah, all that good stuff. But yeah, hell of a college career. And just making the NBA at all, super impressive. <sighs> that feels like a podcast though. The Raptors win. RJ, awesome scoring game. Scotty, kind of on the in-between in this game. It's tough to find your way through all these games. We're seeing it happen. Jakob with a massive close. Emmanuel cashes enough threes, gets downhill a little bit, not in an assist way, not in a made shot way. But 
you know, finishes six of 13, 18 of four. Bruce Brown, four of five, gets some of those baseline floaters to go. And uh, yeah, Dennis, I thought, had a better game than most people seem to think he had. And Grady, hell yeah. Big time, hell yeah, Grady. Um, Raptors fan says, is there a scheduled Maasai presser tomorrow? There should be, yes. So, um, although I probably won't be going to it, uh, but I'll be doing the, the podcast, live trade deadline podcast. I, I'll have guests on. I think the the only guy I have scheduled right now to come on the podcast tomorrow, the live stream is S. But um, yeah, Cure Doyle says Samson running pick and roll on the beach in Cancun. Elite. Um, it West Coast, Port of Arida was where I lived. And um, there was a lot of pick and roll. They also have this crazy thing in Mexico. Um, <laughs> in Mexico, they only clear the ball out of the paint, which I hated because it just meant that like the, the real grimy grinders would just like start posting up immediately. Like they'd get the rebound and the guy would like clear the like touch pass out of the paint. And then you just like post entry it back in. Which to me, I was like, this takes no skill at all. What the hell? Like, we're not even like dribbling the basketball. You guys don't clear the ball to the three-point line? I thought it was nuts. I thought it was insane. Like, not after a made shot. After a miss, you don't clear the ball. Um, and a made shot. You just like, it was insane to me. I, I, I didn't really, yeah, the hoops were chaotic. Like Phoenix plays Z says, Samson, would you ever try to pull a hammer set in a pickup game or too complex? Well, a hammer set requires the guy's off ball completely on the other side of the court to run a hammer screen and you need like because it, it could be a flare or a pin in technically if you wanted it to be but if you're running it from the the strong side to the weak side then it's that's what makes it a hammer it's you know based off of darvin ham on, on the bucks and so it would be very tough to get the other guys to like coordinate the action in pickup basketball anyway, right? And, like, pickup basketball is mostly about two-man actions. Like, if you have a good guy to run pick and roll with, you can kind of, like, demolish another team. Or if you can just cook guys in isolation, which was always, when I first got to Mexico, that was kind of, like, what I did. I was keeping a, a tally in my brain of how many games of one-on-one -on -one I could win in a row. Like, I'd just go to the, to the court and just play, like, whoever was there, which is also how I met my best friend in Mexico, who I'll see in a, in a couple weeks, Beto. I met him playing one-on-one. -on -one. And so I've made a ton of friends playing basketball. What a, what a great sport. Just fantastic. Um, Coco asks, what time will you guys be on for the live stream? I reckon I'll start at like 12 or 1. If, I, if 1, if nothing interesting has happened, probably. 12 if something happens, I guess. I'll be ready to start at 12, but want to be on at 1. For the, for the draft podcast or something like that, I'm sure... It'll go like four hours, but the trade deadline, I don't want to, I don't want to do like four hours on that kind of stuff. Um, Phoenix plays Z says, how chaotic would pick up hoops be if we call three second violations? You won't get through a game. You need that plotting guy in the middle because, you know, pickup games, you don't really, it's just guys who show up, girls who show up, NBs who show up. There's always going to be somebody who wants to hang around in the paint, of course. All right. We have 160 concurrent viewers. Make sure to like the video while you're here. I'm supposed to ask that during the when it's at its highest sorry i'm forgetting and also i hope people appreciate that there was no ad today because the live podcast happened last night i want to thank everybody who is in chat 
that came out. I know there's at least a few people in there. It was a total blast. I loved meeting the people, chopping it up. And those types of, you know, that's like a fundraiser basically for Raptors Republic because Raptors Republic, you know, as you see, Sports Illustrated folds, Yahoo Sports folds, these huge things in sports media fold and Raptors Republic still keeps going strong. And a big reason for that is support from the community, obviously. So um, paying for those tickets is a big deal for Raptors Republic. Thank you to everybody who did. Um, the three-on-three tournament is another thing like that. We never have problems getting entries from teams. That'll be a blast. And thank you to everybody who subscribes to the website and to everybody who likes this video and to everybody who you know subscribes to the YouTube channel. Any small thing helps. Some things are bigger than others. I appreciate the big ones, obviously. But um, yeah. OG3 says, now we just get a retroactive ad in the form of a thank you. I'm on to your game. That's right, man. Always plugging, always working it, always working it. Um, all right. Thanks to everybody for hopping in. I'll see some of y'all tomorrow for the trade deadline live stream. Okay. All good. Bernard says, go watch Pelicans at Clippers. Looks like a good one. I might. Oleg also might try and get me to play FIFA. He doesn't get tired of losing, apparently. All right, everybody. Thanks for hopping in, and whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day, and goodbye.